Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3.8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He was willing to give everything up for Jesus Christ and the value and the worth of Jesus Christ. Recently at my teaching internship job at Challenger School, one of the vocabulary words that the students had was valuable. They're reading this book, it's called Silver, about this little dog that is valuable to this girl because someday she hopes to race in the Iteterod race in Alaska, this thousand mile race, and here's this little dog that the dad calls the runt and she wants to raise him up and feed him and strengthen Silver so that one day he can be the lead race dog. And so these are first graders reading this book and I'm reading the book to them. And so I thought, how can I show them value? I printed out a coin. It's just a picture of the most valuable or the most expensive silver dollar in the world valued at $10 million. It's a 1794 silver dollar. It's supposedly the first coin that was minted in the US and I held up this picture of this $10 million coin and you should have seen their faces. Wow, $10 million for that? And then I made the mistake of telling them that I had a silver dollar myself that actually Brian Bean, some of you guys know Brian Bean, he gave us a wedding gift, actually so several silver dollars to Leah and I that are probably worth a lot more today than they were about 11 years ago when I got married. But I told the students I'd bring in one of those so they could actually see a silver dollar. And I thought I knew where they were. And since I moved, I can't find them. And I've been looking all week and students have been coming up to me every day. Where's that silver dollar? We want to see the silver dollar. You showed us a picture of that other one. We want to see yours. To the point teachers are coming up to me and saying, the students are asking about your silver dollar. Please do not bring that up ever again. And so I'm hoping to find that silver dollar or one of those silver dollars because I think he gave us like three or four of them. And that's a picture of value, right? In the world's eyes, wow, something that's worth 10 million dollars, wow, that's valuable. But when you look throughout the scriptures, the New Testament writers are saying, look at how valuable Jesus Christ is. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 3.8. He speaks of the unfathomable riches of Christ. The Greek word means incomprehensible, literally impossible to track. His worth is beyond comprehension. Colossians 3, 4 says Christ is our life. Ephesians 2, 14, he is our peace. Revelation 17, 14, he's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. 1 Timothy 1, 1, he's referred to as our hope. Titus 2, 13, where we get the name of Blessed Hope Chapel, Jesus is referred to as the Blessed Hope and our great God. What does it mean to savor? I mean, the title of the message, See and Savor Christ. To savor means to enjoy completely, to take pleasure in, to delight in. And I'd add more than anything else. Do we delight in Jesus more than anything? Can we say like Paul, I've counted everything as loss for the sake of Christ, for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. I love Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist is saying to God, at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Who's at God's right hand? 
Christ. In Christ, there are pleasures forevermore. And the scripture puts it this way in Ephesians 2, 6. God raised us up with him, Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The New Testament writers are saying in different ways, Jesus is more valuable the unfathomable riches, the riches of Christ are more than the riches of this world, or at least they should be in our lives. One article I read said 72% of Americans are stressed out over money. 72%. And why is that? Perhaps because that's all they're thinking about. That's their surpassing value. That's what they're living for. And you'd be surprised, and maybe you wouldn't be surprised, that even millionaires and billionaires are stressed out over money. But when you put your faith in Jesus, when you see and savor him, when you, when you delight in him and take pleasure in him, you see money for what it really is. It can be a blessing from God, but it doesn't take first place in our hearts. Listen to all these titles that I found as I was digging into the scripture about Christ. He's our advocate. He's the one that pleads our case in 1 John 2.1. He's the Almighty in Revelation 1.8, the Alpha and the Omega as well in Revelation 1.8. He's the Amen, Revelation 3.14. He's the Apostle and High Priest, Apostle meaning the Sent One. He was sent down from heaven for us. Hebrews 12.2, he's the Author and Finisher of our faith. Hebrews 5.9, he's the Author of Eternal Salvation. John 6.32, he's the True Bread. 1 Peter 5.4, the chief shepherd. Romans 11.26, the deliverer. John 10.7, the door. Revelation 1.5, the faithful witness. Revelation 1.17, the first and the last. Hebrews 6.20, the forerunner. John 10.11, the good shepherd. Ephesians 1.22, the head over all things. Hebrews 1.2, the heir of all things. Acts 3.14, the holy one. John 8, 58, the I am. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the image of God. Acts 7, 52, the just one. Revelation 13, 8, the lamb slain. John 14, 6, the way, the truth, the life. John 8, 12, the light of the world. Revelation 5, 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Acts 10, 36, the Lord of all. 1 Corinthians 2, 8, the Lord of glory. 1 Timothy 2.5, the mediator. Acts 3.15, the prince of life. John 11.25, the resurrection and the life. 1 Corinthians 10.4, the rock. 1 Peter 2.25, the shepherd and guardian of your souls. John 1.9, the true light. John 15.1, the true vine. Revelation 19.13, the word of God. That's just a sample for us. You might say, I know those titles. I grew up in church. I've heard these titles, but knowing is different than scriptural knowing. The Greek word for knowing in the scripture, where Paul says in Philippians 3.10, that I might know Christ, the power of his resurrection, to share in his sufferings and be conformed unto his death in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. He wants to know Christ more. He already knows Christ, and many of us know Christ. We know these titles of Christ, but do we truly know him? as good shepherd? Do we know him as the I am? Do we know him as the true bread, the deliverer? Do we just have a mental assent 
to these titles, or do we know him intimately? The Greek word is gnosko, experiential knowledge. Ephesians 1.18 says, I pray that your eyes, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance of the saints. The prayer for us is that we would truly know Christ, that we would truly see him and savor him for who he is. So when it says there, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, to be enlightened means to light up, to shine, to illumine. Maybe you've heard that phrase, the light bulb went on, or maybe you've said that when something clicked in life, the light bulb went on. And as we read about Christ and many in the scripture as they saw Christ and what he did in the miracles, it was as if the light bulb went on in their soul. And then they truly saw Christ for who he was. Some saw him as just a mere carpenter. Some saw him as Mary's son and Joseph's son. This poor boy who grew up to be this man from this city of Nazareth. And they just saw him as that, as nothing. But those who truly saw him knew who Jesus was. John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Not that they might know who you are, know some things about you, know some titles about you, but truly know, gnosko, experiential knowledge, to intimately know. The Greek word is used of Joseph and Mary when they knew one another and they had Jesus. Do you know the Lord? Do you know Christ? Do you intimately see him and savor him? And that's what I'm, tr- I'm trying to do today. And many times when I preach, what we're doing is we're showing Jesus. Just as I lifted up that picture in class and said, here's this silver dollar, look at the value. When we read the scripture, we're saying, here's Jesus Christ. Look at his value. Look at how awesome he is. Look at how beautiful he is. Look at how magnificent he is. And our eyes should be like, wow, that's Jesus. We should worship him. We should glorify him. And it's as if the New Testament writers are screaming this out to us on the pages of scripture that Jesus is precious. He's valuable. He's worthy of all our praise, our honor, our love, our devotion, our passion, our affection, our admiration, our reverence, our worship. He is worthy. The apostle John understood this. He got as close to Jesus as he possibly could. If you remember the last supper, John chapter 13, verse 23, it says that John rested on Jesus' bosom. He laid on his chest. He was trying to get as close to Jesus as he could. He was in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He was there at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother Mary. He was the first disciple to the tomb in John chapter 20, verse 4, and he's glad to tell us that, that he outran Peter and was first there. Of course, he calls himself the, himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he was the first to recognize Jesus on the Galilean shore in John chapter 21. If you remember, they went back to fishing and John looked and saw and noticed that it was Jesus. No one else did. And then finally, Peter gets out, jumps in the water, and you know the rest of the story. John the Baptist, he understood who Jesus was. He was asked, are you a prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? And he said, no, but one is coming after me who I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandal. Wow. 
Nicodemus understood who Jesus was. He put his job and his reputation on the line to visit Jesus by night. Perhaps he was a little fearful. He wouldn't do it during the day. But at least he questioned Jesus by night. He was inquiring of Jesus. And we read at the end of the book of John that who's there at the cross to take down the body of Jesus? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. He says in John 3, 2, no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. He knew who Jesus was. John chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well. It took Jesus quite a long time to get through to her. He, kept, he keeps going back and forth with her. He's talking about living water. She thinks he's talking about physical water. He keeps going to the spiritual. She thinks he's talking about the physical till finally he shows himself to her. I am the Christ. She believes, drops the water pot, goes running, and can't help but tell everyone about how beautiful and awesome and magnificent Jesus is. And many get saved because of that. John chapter six, many disciples leave. Jesus tells them, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to have life, if you want to have a part of me. They get confused. They think he's talking about cannibalism. They all run away, and Jesus looks at Peter and the disciples and says, are you going to leave as well? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words to eternal life, the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. Peter understood this. You get to John chapter 7. These officers are supposed to arrest Jesus and bring him to the religious leaders. But instead, this is what they proclaim. Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. They caught a glimpse of who Jesus really was. And if you'll turn with me to John chapter 9, verses 30 through 41, just give you a little background here. There's a blind man, blind from birth. The disciples question Jesus and ask, who sinned? Was it this man or his mother or his father? And Jesus said, no, nobody sinned. You're about to see the power of God displayed. And Jesus said in John 9, 5, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And in John, it says that he enlightens every heart that enters the world. And he's about to illumine this blind man's heart. And that's what he does. He gives him sight. He heals him. I believe he spits in his hand touches this man's eyes and says, go wash. And he does it, and he washes in his eyes. He can now physically see. And the religious leaders are going, well, wait a second. We don't believe this. There's no way that this man was really blind. And they bring his parents in and say, was he really blind? And they say, well, yes, he was born blind, but now he can see. And we don't know who did it, and don't ask us any more questions because we don't want to get kicked out of the temple. We don't want to lose our right to buy and sell. We don't want to lose our livelihood. So don't ask us who healed this man, our son. Don't ask us who healed him. Go ask him. And so that's what they do. For a bulk of chapter nine, they're asking him, who healed you? And he says, Jesus healed me. And they go, well, okay, but who healed you? And then he says, well, Jesus healed me. Look, I can see. And then they ask him again. And he goes, how many times do I have to tell you I was blind and now I see? This man, Jesus, healed me. And so finally in verse 34, it says they put him out of the temple. They kick him out. That's it. We don't want to deal with you. And he's like, what did I do? I was a blind man and now I see. What's the problem here? And back then when you were kicked out of the temple, you were excluded from worship. Curses were called down on you and you couldn't buy or sell. So he's kicked out and you see in verse 35 of John 9, Jesus heard that they had put him out. 
And finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, and who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and, th- and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. They, say, they were saying, we can see you, Jesus, for who you truly, truly are. You're not the Messiah. You're not the Son of God. You're doing these miracles by Beelzebub. And, he said, and Jesus is saying to them, you're prideful. You're arrogant. You say that you can see spiritually. You think you know God, but you don't know God. You're blind. And Jesus showed them through this meek, blind man by giving him physical sight and then illumining his heart so that the light of Christ would shine in his heart so that he would believe in Jesus what true salvation is. And we could go throughout the book of John and Matthew and Mark and Luke as well and look at all these different people when they had an encounter with Jesus and when they truly saw him, what they were willing to do for him. In John chapter 11, if you remember the story of Lazarus, Jesus says, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And the disciples say, okay, he's asleep. Great. And he says, no, 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 he's dead. And we're going to go to him. And when Jesus said to the disciples, we're going to go to Lazarus, What Jesus meant was we're going to physically go to where he's at and I'm going to raise him up. That was Jesus's plan. But Thomas didn't understand that. Thomas thought that Jesus meant we're going to go to him, meaning, okay, Lazarus is dead and we're going to go to him and we're going to go die with him. And so in John 11, Thomas responds, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas gets a bad rap, right? Doubting Thomas. He's the one that said, I need to see Jesus. I need to see those nail-scarred hands if I'm truly going to believe. But here Thomas is willing to die. He's ready to go to death for Jesus. I love John chapter 12, where Mary pours out a pound of very costly perfume. Some commentators believe it's thirty to $50,000 worth of perfume in today's currency. Pours this out before Jesus, washing his feet with her tears and with her hair. And who there is coming against this noble thing that she's doing, Judas. Why wasn't this money given to the poor? And of course, Judas was a thief. And the scripture tells us that the Pharisees in Luke 16, 14 were lovers of money. So just as the Pharisees were blinded to the value and the worth and the preciousness of Jesus because they were clinging to earthly riches, same thing with Judas here. He was unable to see the value of Jesus John chapter 12, the Greeks go up to worship at the feast and they tug on Philip and they say, can we but see Jesus? They just wanted to catch a glimpse of him. And in John chapter 20, if you remember the story, Peter and John are running to the tomb and we'll look at it a little bit later, but I love how Peter and John are running to the tomb. I'd love to see a a video footage of this. I imagine maybe like Peter was trying to trip him up Maybe they tackled each other at one point. 
you know, knowing how stubborn Peter was and how competitive he was, wanting to get there first, and yet the scripture tells us that John beat him to the tomb. And so actually, why don't we go there right now? I want to read you this passage, passage, John chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb and the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. You see how John puts that in there. Running faster than Peter, got to the tomb first. Little side note there and then verse five. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Maybe there's spiders, rats, it's dark in there. He's a little fearful. He gets there first, but he's not going to go in. But then we see in verse 6, Peter, Simon Peter, therefore, also came following him and entered the tomb. And he beheld the linen wrapping, wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also, and he saw and believed. And when you look at verse five, where it says that Peter saw the linen wrappings, that's the Greek word blepo. It typically means in scripture to see physically. He went inside, he physically saw the linen wrappings, but in verse eight, we see a different Greek word where John entered the tomb and he saw and believed. That Greek word is orao, and it means typically in scripture to see with the mind, to perceive spiritually. And when it says he believed, many commentators understand this to mean that he at that moment saw Jesus for who he really was, the Messiah who told them that he would rise from the grave. And so with his spiritual eyes, he saw and believed in the resurrection. And I found that quite fascinating as I was reading this passage. If you'll turn with me to 1 Peter, same Peter who ran to the tomb and was beat there by John. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. And just a quick background, Peter is writing to people who are undergoing trials, persecutions. They're spread out. He says in verse 1, they're strangers, they're exiles, the New King James calls them pilgrims in the land. And when people are going through trials, they need reminders. They need spiritual truths. They need promises to grab a hold of. And that's what Peter does in the verses leading up to verse 8, especially in verses 1 through 5. First Peter 1, 1 through 5. He says at the end of verse 1, how they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. In verse 3, he reminds them that they're born again. Verse 4, he tells them that there is an inheritance reserved for them in heaven. Verse 5, he reminds them that they are protected by the power of God through faith. It's beautiful to think about that, how we are protected by God through the power of faith for the final salvation. If you have faith in God, you're protected. No one can snatch you out of his hand. Verse 6, In light of all these things, 
He says, in this you greatly rejoice because you've been chosen, because the Spirit is sanctifying you, because you're born again, you have an inheritance reserved in heaven, it's protected by the power of God through faith, you can greatly rejoice. Though you're going through these trials, though you're going through these difficulties, and he goes on to say in verse seven that these trials are testing your faith, that your faith is more valuable than gold. And you get to verse eight, 1 Peter 1, 8, and this is what he says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He's saying you can't see him with your physical eyes. Though you don't see him, like I saw him, Peter could say, because Jesus was there. Peter was there with Jesus when he died and rose again. Though you do not see him, you rejoice. Why do they rejoice? Because they do see Jesus, right? That's the point of this message seeing him with your spiritual eyes, truly seeing Jesus. And because they truly saw Jesus, they were able to rejoice in light of all that was going on in their lives. Verse nine, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He reminds them over and over, your faith equals salvation. Cling to your salvation, cling to the inheritance you have. So when life gets hard, look to what you have in Christ if we're clinging to the inheritance and the worldly treasures that we have now, we're missing out on what Christ has for us in the future. We're probably gonna be empty, distraught, despairing, and they're filled with joy because they're looking to this inheritance. Verse 10, again, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. He's seeing, Peter is saying they can't see, they couldn't see the way you see. They made careful search, inquiry, seeking to know. They saw through a glass dimly, just like we do today, but we have a more clear picture of who Jesus is. And to look intently means to inspect curiously, to seek diligently. It's an investigative term. They wanted to see more, but they just caught a glimpse. And Peter's saying, don't you understand what you have in Christ? That you can truly see him for who he is in light of the revelation of the New Testament and the word of God. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you And these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. The angels are longing to see this entire gospel message, who Christ truly is and what he did for us. The prophets are trying to see and Peter's saying, look, you can see. You can't see, but you can see. Just as I began, we know these things, but do we really know Christ? Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3.1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. It's as if you were at the cross, Galatians. It's as if you could see Jesus when he died for your sins. That's how clearly, that's how completely, that's how thoroughly I explained the message of the cross to you, Galatians that it's as if you could see with your eyes. But the eyes of your heart have grown dim. You've deviated from the gospel. 
And so Paul is saying, open your eyes and see the beauty of the cross and the salvation that comes through faith in him and in him alone. Ezekiel could say the same thing in his day in Ezekiel 12 too. Actually, God is saying this to Ezekiel, son of man, you're living in a rebellious house. They have eyes to see, but do not see. Ears to hear, but do not hear. For they are a rebellious house. Jesus echoed this in Matthew 13, 13 and 14. And he said, this is why I speak to them in in parables, because those seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not understand. In them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. And so it is in our day. There's many people that say, I know who Jesus is. I have a Bible. I grew up in the church. I know what Christianity is. And yet seeing, they do not see. I read an article titled, Bibles are everywhere, but who is reading? The article states 85% of U.S. households own a Bible, and the average household owns over four. There's more Bibles than people in our country, but nobody's reading. 16% of Americans read the Bible at least four times a week, which was up from 12% the year before. So that was a good thing that it went up 4% to 16% reading the Bible four times a week. The article goes on to say, most Americans don't know firsthand the overall story of the Bible because they barely pick it up, said Scott McConnell, executive director of Lifeway Research. Even among worship attendees, less than half read the Bible daily. The only time most Americans hear from the Bible is when someone else is reading it. Another article I found from PRNewsWire.com titled, A Majority of Americans Think Jesus is a Great Teacher, Yet Reject His Claims to Be God. goes on to say, A new survey reveals that 52% of American adults believe that Jesus was a great teacher and nothing more. Seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not understand. That's the culture that we live in. It's our job to see Christ for who he truly is, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, as the scripture says, to truly know him, to savor him, to delight in him, to worship him, and to share this message with the world around us. People don't realize what they're missing out on, and many in the church don't realize who they're missing out on as well. The unfathomable riches of Christ, his incomprehensible love, People are counting their money, focused on their money, and God says, it's all mine. I created the universe. All the gold on planet Earth is mine. And he says, you can have everything in your inheritance in heaven. Streets of gold. It's all yours, Christian, in heaven. And yet, we're focused on the things that are passing away. And it will leave us empty, and it's leaving many in our country, in our world, empty. And there's a famine in our land with almost a church on every street corner, a Bible in almost every house, yet the culture somehow seems to be growing darker and darker. Jeremiah 2.5 seems to ring true today. Thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became 
empty. If we're striving for the things of this world, it's going to leave us empty. The more we know Christ, the more fulfilled we will be. When we, fi- when we try to find our ultimate joy and pleasure in anything or anyone but Jesus, it will leave us empty. And there's a billion and one distractions in this world, isn't there? So many things that are trying to get our eyes off of Christ to get us away from seeing and savoring Jesus. So may we delight and find our satisfaction in the one who said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. I read another article that said that many Americans watch as much as five to seven hours of television a day. It said if you're in, as this building, the senior center, if you're a senior, it's 10 hours or more, one article said, of television a day. Now, you could be watching sermons or you could be watching the History Channel, something educational, or I'm not going to judge you for these things. That's between you and the Lord, how often you go on your phone or your iPad or Twitter or Instagram or The point is that so many people are consumed with technology and these things that they never crack open their Bible. And I was thinking about sharing a story and I'll share it and probably butcher it. As I was tossing and turning at around 5 a.m., the story came to my mind of this old pastor that went to this family to visit them and he sat down for dinner and it was in the 1800s or so. I don't know if that's really when it was, but 1800s, And the mom, the wife, she prepared food. She prepared soup. And the pastor sat down and ate, and she put the gold or the silver spoon in his bowl, and he began to eat with them and have supper. And they talked about a million and one different things. And the night was going well, and he said, I need to go home now. And so he left. And days went by, and days went by, and he preached at church, and saw the family off and on at church. And then time went by where the lady realized that she was missing this silver spoon. Silver was worth a lot back then. This was an expensive spoon that she allowed the pastor to use that night to eat this porridge, whatever it was. And so she's now getting mad. This pastor stole my silver spoon. He's in it for the riches. He's in it for the money. And I'm going to go confront him next Sunday. And so she walks up to the pastor and she says, where is that silver spoon that you took from my house? I've been looking all over for it. It's nowhere in my house. You must have taken it. And he said, well, I left it in your Bible. And so she walked away and that's the end of the story. And so I think Pastor Joe told that one a couple years ago maybe and somehow it came back to me in the middle of the night. But it's a pretty powerful story about You looked everywhere else, but you haven't cracked open that Bible in who knows how long. And that's many people in our culture, as that one article stated. They're hearing about the Lord from other people reading the Bible instead of reading it for themselves when most families have four Bibles in their house. May we read, may we meditate on, may we gaze upon the beauty of Christ. May our hearts be enlightened by the one who said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Do people see your light in you? Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father 
in heaven. Man, that's one of my prayers all the time. Lord, I'm at this school. I'm with these very wealthy kids. Their parents are driving up in Teslas and Ford F-150 Raptors that are brand new, probably $100,000. Seems like every other parent has a brand new Tesla. And I'm like, wow, I'm unloading them from the car going, beautiful car, great. And many of the kids, their parents are divorced and they're empty. And I'm saying, Lord, help me to shine the light somehow. I want to share scripture, but I don't want to go say too much. I don't want to get kicked out of the school. So Lord, give me wisdom. Give me the words to speak. Help me to be a light. Help them to see the joy that I have in you and help it to just permeate their hearts, Lord. Help me to have an effect on their lives in any way that I can. So I'm trying to build those relationships now. I'm trying to like sow those seeds so that their hearts are soft and they can trust me and then somehow get the truth in there. And same thing with the teachers at the school. Recently, they were jump roping on the playground and I'm trying to do double jumps. That's when you do it and almost pulling out my back because I haven't done this in years. But I'm like, any way that I can reach these kids And now they're all gathering around with their jump ropes. Mr. Paneri, do a double jump for me. Mr. Paneri, show me how to jump rope. And I'm like, okay, whatever I can do. Some of it's foolish, but to build that bridge, so to speak, so that I can share the Lord with them. That's my heart, and I hope that's your heart as well. May we admire, revere, and devote our lives to the one who said before Abraham was born, I am. What a powerful statement. Before Abraham was born, I am. That's what God said in Exodus 3.14 at the burning bush. Tell them, Moses, I am that I am. And then Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. And yet people still would not believe. Amazing. May we forsake all the counterfeits and the idols that promise to fulfill for the one who said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, may, that they might have life and might have it abundantly, that they might have it to the fullest. I love that verse. May we, may we rejoice and be enamored by the one who said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And if you've happened to deviate from this precious one and your eyes have drifted to the things of this world, Never forget his words to you and me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. May the peace of Christ rule in our hearts today. No matter what you're going through, no matter what trials, no temp- whatever temptations, may we allow Jesus and his word and his truth and his peace to permeate our hearts today. So in closing, gaze at his beauty and his kindness and his gentleness and his love for you today. See him and savor him and realize that there is none like him. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his unfathomable riches, inexpressible innumerable, can't even comprehend how amazing you are, Jesus. We pray that we would meditate on you day and night, that we would hide your word in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Forgive us for being distracted by the things of this world. Forgive us for focusing on things that will perish. Help us to focus on you, Lord. May your peace rule in our hearts. 
May you guard our hearts and minds in Christ, and may you satisfy us all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.